Hello and welcome to Rise of the Data Cloud. Today's episode features an interview with Jennifer Bellasson. Jennifer works for the market research firm Forrester Research as an analyst focused on the data economy. Her research and analysis have appeared in media outlets such as the Wall Street Journal, Time, Computer Weekly, and CIO Magazine. She also has industry experience, having worked eight years at Sun Microsystems. On this episode, Jennifer dives deep into the data economy. She talks about where the industry goes from here, the evolution of data cloud solutions, data commercialization, and much more. So please enjoy this interview between Jennifer Bellasant and your host, Steve Hamm. Jennifer, great to meet you online. Great to talk to you. Though earlier in your career, you focused on politics and economics of Eastern Europe, then you spent some time in the Central African Republic. Then you shifted gears and moved into the tech industry. So how do those themes intersect? Or do they? Yes, I was a math teacher in the Central African Republic. I was a Peace Corps volunteer. And then as an urban policy analyst, with the, I was with the Urban Institute working on projects for the World Bank and USAID in Russia and Eastern Europe. And of course, that does seem pretty far from the tech industry. But actually, they, they do intersect. But the honest answer is that I, I moved from Moscow to California and did my PhD in political science at Stanford. And so the, real, the intersection is that I was in the Silicon Valley when the tech industry was just booming. So after I finished my PhD, I decided to leave academia and go into tech and spent quite a few years at Sun Microsystems doing some software marketing, doing some business development. But then when I joined Forrester, I was able to actually bring a lot of things together. I started doing research on smart cities and really I'd come full circle. I I was doing economics and policy and politics and urban policy and, and technology. So then at some point I was looking at open data, which is something was, that was a big deal with smart cities and government for a while and started looking at how companies were using open data to really drive their businesses and create new businesses using that data. So that's really kind of how I evolved from you know, that earlier work in, in economic development and politics and, and began to really look at what has now become and you know, exploded into the data economy. Well, a lot of this really gets back to systems thinking in a way, understanding that a lot of different domains obviously intersect with each other in all sorts of ways, all sorts of complicated ways, and 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 they don't just intersect, they affect each other in all sorts of ways, some of which are unpredictable. So I think the fact that you kind of bring it, you look at this from a really high level, I think is really helpful and it's going to be helpful today in our discussion. You know, there are lots of buzzwords in the tech and data world, and I think it'd be really helpful if right at the top here, you'd provide your definitions of some of the key ones. And the the two ones I'd like to hear from you about are data economy and the data-driven organization. Absolutely. So I, I mentioned the data economy. The way I would really define the data economy is, and we're increasingly seeing companies enter, it is the ability to use data and to derive value from data. And a, a lot of companies today kind of give lip service to that. They look at their data. They they have a lot of it. They immediately jump to what the value, you know, what is the value of that data? And I actually provocatively say to a lot of our clients, I tell them that their data is worth nothing. And then I pause. Yeah. 
And I, I like to refer to a, a quote by Thomas Edison, the value of an idea lies in the using of it. And that's really the bottom line. That's what the data economy is, is deriving value from that data. So data in that case is like those ideas. It's really not valuable unless you start to put it to use. And that's when you get to the data-driven organization, or as we refer to them at Forrester as insights-driven organizations, because it's not about the data itself. Um, it's about the insights that you derive from the data and the value that you bring to the organization. It's not about being data-driven, but it's really about being insights-driven or, or even outcome-oriented. You know, insights-driven organizations are those who systematically use their data. And they, they're cre using that data to create differentiation and competitive advantage. And as we see it at Forrester, there, there are really four pillars that support that organization. We see them investing in their people, their processes, their technology, and, and of course, their data. So we start with people for a reason. Those are the ones who will be driving the organization. So in many ways, the most important investments on this front are, are leadership. And, and, and literacy, which I'd love to talk about as well. Now, you talked about leadership. Many companies have hired or appointed chief data officers. In your view, what's the best way for a chief data officer to operate within the C-suite and more broadly within the organization? So we've seen a really interesting evolution of the chief data officer over the last few years when you know, over having hovered at about 50% of organizations that had chief data officers, you know, over the past few years in, in 2019, 58% of our survey respondents told us that they had appointed a chief data officer and, uh, and another 26% said that they were planning to do so. So we've seen a really massive uptake in appointing leadership to really being insights-driven or, or data-driven. One of the interesting things that we've seen recently, in addition to the number, is where they're reporting in the organization. Early on, we saw a lot of CDOs, chief data officers, reporting into the, the, the CIO, so having more of a technology focus. Nowadays, we see in, the, in this 2019 survey, 38% of the CDOs that we spoke to reported to a, the CEO, so reported right up into uh, the leadership of the organization. And, and interestingly, that really reflects the change in the mandate that we've seen of, of CDOs. They're, they used to be more focused on data management, data governance, kind of more of the, the infrastructure around the data, kind of get, getting the data house in order, if you will. But nowadays we see much more of a focus on driving the use of data and, and driving value from the data. So it's really an, a, a, an interesting shift that we've seen. And so having them report into the CEO and having them really have a more of a business mandate reinforces that, that notion of using the data to, to derive value. It's interesting that you talk about the the change in the reporting structure. I think about IT, you know, and, you know, in lots of companies, the IT people report to the CFO, the chief financial officer, kind of suggesting, oh, this is all about money and saving money and efficiency and maybe automation. Is that changing as well, that reporting structure? So as, as technology has taken on a more strategic role in an organization, it's no longer just about keeping the lights on and keeping the systems running. It's really about driving the business. And so as we've seen that shift, 
particularly as we've seen digital transformation, we've seen the technology leaders report directly into the, the CEO. So similarly with the CDO, as we've seen the orientation become much more business oriented, much more strategic to the organization, you know, whether we're talking about technology or whether we're talking about data, or even whether we're talking about human resources. In the past, human resources as a function didn't necessarily report into the CEO. It was something that also reported into a CFO or a chief operating officer. But likewise, we're you know, we're, we're anything that is really a, a strategic pillar in the organization. It's not just about cost and keeping the organization, you know, keeping the lights on. It's about driving the strategy of the, of the company as a whole. And I, I really think we saw that evolution with the CIO probably starting 20 years ago. Um, and now we're seeing a similar evolution with, with the chief data officers as well. Now you've been talking about leadership, but, you know, when you talk about a data-driven or insights-driven organization, that involves everybody. You write a lot about data literacy. Why is that so important in an organization and who needs to become data literate? Literacy applies to everyone in the organization. And that's one of the things that I've been a little bit frustrated with. Sometimes you talk to people about data literacy and they think you're focused on just, you know, talking to the data scientists or talking to the business analysts and increasing, you know, those who are already data savvy. But one of the one of the things that we found is that it's really important to focus on all employees. And as part, as it's an interesting story. One as part of our data literacy research, we asked one of Forrester's online panels a few questions, and we were really looking. We thought we were looking for their preferences about how they wanted to be trained to better use data. So we we asked three questions. We asked, do you work with data? Are you comfortable with data? And then we asked, what type of training would you like? And really, I, I thought question three was going to be the most important. You know, obviously, you know, how would you like your training to be delivered? But it was actually one and two that were the most interesting. When we asked, do you work with data? We got answers like, and I'll just read one to you. We don't really analyze data where I work. We don't calculate or do any aggregations of data. We will create spreadsheets on various subjects. It's more a way of keeping track of issues. It isn't data calculations. So, you know, hearing that was a wake-up call that it's, people don't really recognize that they're working with data. They don't really know what data is today. And so that really drove some of the work that we did around data literacy. And we, we created a framework where data literacy starts with awareness. It, it starts with just this basic understanding of what is data, how is it used in my organization, and what's my role with it. So do you think that practically any employee in an organization should be using data. I mean, either through a dashboard like Tableau or even AI like ThoughtSpot and DataRobot and some of these others, you know, they claim that that their tools could be used by anybody in the organization. I mean, is it mm-hmm. going to be that prevalent? So I, I might become somewhat controversial here. You know, people talk about data democratization, and I actually often kind of provocatively again say I don't believe in democracy. But that doesn't mean that uh, that 
that there are people who don't touch data. I, I do believe that everybody needs to be data literate in to a certain extent. And let me tell, tell a quick story about it. I was talking to the chief digital officer of Sodexo, which is a food service management company. And she was telling me that when they looked at some of the data at one of their food sites, one of the cafeterias, they started seeing really odd things. Over time, they started selling more breakfast sausage in, in their cafeteria in the mornings to the extent to which, you know, which, you know, at some point people were not buying anything else. So, and this was a restaurant, uh, this was in France. So they weren't buying croissants and they weren't buying coffee or whatever. And it turns out what happened was they'd switched their cash registers and they had pre-programmed registers where people just pressed a single button. Um, and that button was capturing, obviously capturing what was sold, capturing inventory, but the closest button to total was breakfast sausage. And wow. so if we had asked this cashier in our survey if they worked with data, they would probably have said no. But in fact, they did. They were pressing a button for the transaction that was capturing inventory. So down the line, that button that they were pressing was telling them that everybody was purchasing breakfast sausage. And so we've heard a number of stories, similar stories that illustrate that if if everyone at the organization doesn't understand that they have a role in either capturing or protecting or potentially using data, there's going to be an issue. And so, you know, that data quality relies on, on the, the awareness of what is data and recognizing data. I want to make sure I understood that example. It was, the, the issue was that the cashiers were pressing the button, just picking a button that was easy to press. Picking a button. Yeah. And that was sending a false signal. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They didn't realize that they were actually capturing data. Yeah. My guess was going to be that maybe there was marijuana in the breakfast sausage or something like that, but it's much simpler than that. Right. And it's certainly not malicious in any way. It's that they're just, they weren't necessarily thinking that somebody was going to be using that data later down the line. So when we talk about data literacy, we've created a framework where we start with awareness and then we focus also on decision makers who they themselves might not be using Alteryx or data robot, but we're expecting them to make decisions based on, on data and insights, but yet we're not necessarily teaching them how to do that. So that's another element of data literacy that I think that people don't focus enough on. And then of course, there is an aspect of data literacy that does focus on the, you know, the experts themselves. So we try to create a, a pyramid that starts with creating that awareness as a foundation and then working on comprehension around data in the middle and then looking at the experts. When I think about different roles in companies, I mean, I certainly think in retail, I mean, assuming retail comes back and we, and we have <laughs> brick and, and mortar retail again, the companies that succeed are going to win with a superior experience for, the, for people to come in. And it seems to me that clerks, in many cases, will really need to do some kind of analytics. They may not think about it as analytics. They may just ask a question, but the to get them an answer may involve analytics. I, I, I think that's going to be a big, big deal. And maybe even like in places like warehouses and things like that where, you know, having knowledge at your fingertips could be very important. Absolutely. I mean, there are a couple of things. A lot of retail clerks or you know, salespeople in, in shops are now expected to use a lot of different applications for checking inventory, for for 
getting information on a particular product. But we also need to keep in mind that that digital literacy is not the same thing as data literacy. Um, and digital literacy means that we can navigate an app and you know we live our lives on our sm- smartphones and we know how to use you know a variety of different tools, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we really understand the data, the statistical or analytical concepts um, right. of data. Yeah, automation can can shield somebody from that complexity or something like that. If you, it can. But on the other hand, if we're expecting somebody to make a decision based on uh, findings or insights that an algorithm delivers to us, we can't necessarily expect them just to take it at face value. We need to be teaching them the underlying logic uh, of, of how that that answer has been derived. And that's one of the challenges I see with insights-driven or data-driven decision-making is we keep telling people that they need to make decisions based on data, but I don't think we're giving them enough of that underlying logic. We've been asking our survey respondents for years what percentage of decisions in their organization are made based on quantitative information as opposed to gut uh, experience or opinion. That's one of the questions we ask. And it has not, it it has stayed relatively the same over the last five years. It's now just under 50%. Five years ago, it was about 43%. Now I think it's actually, you know, 48. So it has increased a little, but not significantly. And with all of the, you know, the kind of the hype you hear around data and insights and analytics and AI, I would have expected more more decision makers to embrace data-driven decision yeah. decision making, and and they haven't. So, do you think this signals that companies just haven't been able to penetrate with the ideas, the data literacy, the the tools into the organization? I mean, is there? This sounds like a bad result for a lot of investment, right? I I think that we've been, you know, like I said, insights-driven organizations require people, process, technology, and data. And I think that we've focused on the technology and data side of things to the detriment of the people and process side of things. And that's, it's not to say that they can't get there, but, you know, with all of this investment, I think it's time to take stock and say, okay, now how can we drive the use of this? And and it's really about investing in, in, in the people. And they they get it, but they just need to be given the the, the tools. And by tools, I, I don't mean another you know not necessarily another another software Technology package. Tool, exactly, right. exactly. Right. I want to ask you a big trend question, and it's is one that this podcast is fond of. Do you see a lot of data moving to the cloud? And assuming you do, what's behind the migration, and what are the advantages of of doing so? We, we do see a lot of data moving to the cloud. You know, our data infrastructure experts, they're telling us that they, there's a strong evolution uh, towards the cloud, although evolution doesn't necessarily mean, you know, that, that it's a final state. It, it's evolving. It's happening. It takes a long time. So, you know, just as we've seen certain, you know, certain apps and workloads move to the to the cloud, some happen more quickly than others. You know that's that's what we're seeing, and we'll expect to see with data. So some data, particularly that which will be shared or sold, <laughs> I say that because people often don't like the term sold. You know the, that that data will move more quickly. Others might take more time. And in in our surveys, we are seeing that you know quite a big percentage of data is moving into you know cloud it, it's being it's coming from cloud apps and it's being stored in in, in yeah. cloud databases 
And do you see that happening mainly in like large enterprises or are small and medium businesses also doing this kind of thing? I don't have the specific figures on how it breaks down, but mm-hmm. I, I see it, it, it happening in perhaps different degrees, but across all sizes of organizations. Mm-hmm. You might think it's a big organization thing, but smaller organizations might have less of their own on-premise infrastructure, right. or they might be natively cloud. You know, right. they've built up their infrastructure by taking advantage of, of public cloud. So uh, a lot of companies seem to be opting to have a hybrid cloud strategy, you know, moving some of their data and computing in the cloud, but keeping some in their own data centers. Do you think that's a smart strategy overall? Smart or not, it's a strategy that we're definitely seeing. So 75% of our survey respondents tell us that they describe their cloud strategy as hybrid. Obviously, doing that allows them to take advantage of, you know, the 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 extra capacity that they might be able to get from cloud. It allows them to differentiate between things that they want to um, keep on premise for whatever reason or that they want to migrate later. So, you know, there are a variety of different reasons as to why things might be in one place versus another, but we're definitely seeing that happen. I want to talk about sharing for a minute here. One of the challenges in, in business today is the fact that organizations have data trapped within departments or business units, you know, in silos. Mm-hmm. Yet it does seem like there's more interest in sharing data either within an organization or between organizations. What is driving the data sharing trend and what technologies are enabling it? So what's driving the data sharing trend is the recognition that external data, whether it's external to your specific business unit and requires you to find data from another business unit within the same company or whether it's outside of the company altogether, but recognition that that additional data sources, external data, deliver differentiation, can give you lift in a particular model, can improve your, 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 the predictability of what you're trying to predict. And so it's that recognition that, that additional data can deliver value. And we're increasingly seeing companies recognize that. And so, you know, technologies that enable that, well, one is the cloud itself, having data that's more easily accessible, that's one. New marketplaces that that make it easier to find, to discover and and access that data, that's that's another. Obviously, new, you know, capabilities like, you know, APIs or easier integration, those are basic, but those types of technologies make it much easier to share the data. You mentioned marketplaces, data marketplaces, and I'm sure you're familiar with Snowflake's public and private data exchanges. What role do you think data marketplaces will play in the next era of business? So I'll be honest, I've had mixed feelings about data marketplaces. There, there's been an explosion of them. You know, they've popped up like mushrooms after the rain and, and VC has poured into them. Some won't make it. Some of the smaller marketplaces marketplaces won't make it. Others definitely will. But data is not a commodity. You know, it's not like this field of dreams. If we build it, they will come. Uh, and so, so some of those smaller marketplaces that are, are, are just aggregating data, like I said, some of those might not make it. There will be consolidation. What the important aspect, and I think that this is an advantage that, that Snowflake definitely has, is that where there's data that's already where, where people are and where other data is, and that, that marketplace can make discovery and access to that data much easier, 
that's going to really drive that data sharing and the, and the commercialization. And so we're going to see uh, a big difference in marketplaces that are out there today. One of the key things is bringing data in that's not from your organization, from other organizations. And some people call this alternative data, alternative data sources. So I'm wondering if you could kind of go down and and take us through that. What kinds of alternative sources are people bringing in? How are they matching that up with data that they produce themselves? And, And what kind of new results are they getting that they couldn't get before? Absolutely. We're seeing a significant uptick in interest in the use of external data. Um, Actually, in Forrester's surveys, 56% of our respondents tell us that their organizations prioritize being able to better leverage external data. Another 26% tell us that they're you know, planning on doing that in the near future. So really just a very, very significant interest in, in external data sources. Yes, some of that is all data. There's no real formal de- definition of it, but really it's, it's anything that comes from a non-traditional data source. And so, you know, in the olden days, we might have referred to it as proxy data. It's something that you can use to replace some data that you don't have or you don't know. We've seen, for example, you want to know how a business is doing and you don't necessarily have their sales figures, well, people are now using satellite data to look at how many cars are in their parking lots. So satellite data is one. Other kinds of IoT data or data that, like you said, that comes from outside of their their organization. So we're seeing there, historically, there was a, a lot of interest in this alt data within the financial market. So hedge funds used a lot of alt data to pr- predict how a stock was going to move. But now we're seeing companies increasingly interested in that. So one interesting is the telecom operators are taking their data to market. You can look at where there's a lot of traffic from a mobile phone. So you can look, you know, real estate developers know which corner in a city is most interesting from a placement perspective, you know, where to put a store because they can see where there are concentrations of people. Where are people going? Or cities are using that data to understand traffic patterns and know where they might want to put a bus route or some other type of transportation route. So those are are examples. There's other things like weather. Anything that could have an impact on on what you're doing suggests a causal relationship, those kinds of things. Yeah, weather is a great one. Or just uh, local events. You know, people want to know what the demand for something might be, you know, how to, what, what, type of product to stock in a store. You look at the weather, you know, today it's going to rain, you want umbrellas, you know, it's going to be really hot. You're going to stock flip, stock flip-flops, you know, how much ice cream are you going to sell? That depends on the weather. There's a, you know, what, what the local news was or whether there's going to be a, a concert locally. So all of those types of data, and that's increasingly available. And anyone who's got a, some sort of sensor, I mean, this is one of the, we talked about marketplaces, but one of the advantages of marketplaces Obviously, buyers can go and and find data that they might not have had access to, but the sellers of data, those who have um, sensor data that they're looking to to commercialize or offer to others, they can make that data available through a marketplace. People have been talking about IoT for about 20 years, but now we really have a lot of it installed and there's just a, a flood of data pouring from those devices into servers and into mm-hmm. the cloud and things like that. So it's just, it's a data rich environment, isn't it? 
Absolutely. And I think that, you know, it was kind of slow to take off. People talked about IoT a lot of time. There was a, a long period of time where we hadn't really seen the promise of it because we were still investing in instrumenting things and, and making things interconnected. But The next step is to really make them intelligent. And so to be intelligent, you have to have access to that data, but know how to use it and really put it to use. You know, for years, I've been hearing people talk about data monetization. You know, the idea that that companies that really aren't in the data monetization business will discover that within their organizations, they are producing data that would be valuable to others and they can sell it. Do you actually see that happening? Absolutely. So it's interesting. I actually differentiate between what I call data monetization and data commercialization. And the way I differentiate is this. So companies use their data internally to better understand their customers or better understand their operations in order to improve them, um, improve their customer experience, identify next best offers, those kinds of things, or streamline processes. That is deriving value. That's monetizing the data. And then they often realize that something that they're doing internally or the data that, they're, that they have generated could be, and others could derive benefits from it as well. And so they take that data to market in, in some fashion. And that is what I refer to as data commercialization. And we've seen a massive uptick in that. When we first started to look at this probably five or six years ago, about 10% of companies told us that they were doing it. Now, over half of companies tell us that they are selling or sharing their data for revenue. So they're selling it, essentially. Some people don't like the term, you know, selling. They, they say sharing for compensation. But I'm really surprised to hear this. Can you give an example of a company that's done that? Absolutely. So there are a couple. Take GE Aviation, for example. They create commercial airplane engines. And they've been been—they've got sensors all over the engines that are capturing a lot of different data. Now, and, and, and this is an interesting you know, example that, that illustrates the monetization versus com- commercialization. So they've been using that data to, to improve the products themselves. So understanding the, the feedback from the various you know, pieces of the data to improve the performance of their engines. But then they realized that actually the airlines can use that data as well. So they can use it to better understand fuel efficiency, which might give them indications of how fast they should fly or at what altitude they should fly or, you know, when they needed certain types of maintenance. And so they've started structuring data packages or products. And it's not just the data, but the insights from the data. And they're offering that to their to their customers. So it's like saying, do you want fries with that? Here, you know, here have an engine. And would you like some insights on top of it so that you can optimize your flight paths or better schedule maintenance and reduce downtime? And so that's a a classic example of a company that was, you know, they started with that monetization exercise using that data internally to improve their R&D and improve their product offerings. And then they commercialized it with data products and services that that they sold to their customers. That's a great example. Earlier on, you talked about the four pillars, you know, the, the keys to becoming an insights-driven organization. And they were, they were people, processes, technology, and data. And then you, you talked a little bit about how kind of adoption of the technology, of the approach to doing business has been relatively slow in some cases. 
a question for you. So here we are in the COVID-19 era. And in some ways, some businesses have kind of slowed down or reset. Do you think there's kind of a, a pause moment that people are taking advantage of to kind of rethink, well, is there, are there ways we could be operating better? You know, when you have a crisis, it sometimes clar- clarifies thought. Do you see that happening in, in companies now? I mean, companies that are going to come out of this, they know that they need to do things differently. For starters, we've seen companies that, you know, they know that they need to be more digital. I mean, take grocery, for example. You know, there was, you know, there's been online grocery shopping for a while, but it's not that prolific. And one of the things that we've seen in this you know, pandemic period is that there's a lot more demand for online grocery shopping. And, and maybe in certain markets in the US, that's it's really common. I, I live in Europe. It hasn't been that common. But even in, with my local grocery store, you know, it's been hard to get the window, you know, it's get hard to get a time slot to get groceries delivered because there's so much demand for it. Uh, and that really is driving e-commerce, it's driving digital transformation. And so companies are going to be increasing, you know, accelerating some of those shifts that, yes, we've seen them happening, but the the need to do that is much more urgent now. And for in in many cases, there's not going to be a turning back. Yeah. The other the other thing that's going to be interesting is, you know, it, Companies focus a lot on customer insights and really understanding their customers and 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 knowing uh, when to offer a complimentary product. What's the next best offer? How do I improve that customer experience? And this pandemic period has been really a, a massive exogenous shock. It's really changed the way customers are are acting and reacting to things. And some of those historical patterns that we've relied on to do that prediction and to do that forecasting and to understand what those those offers might be, that's changed. So companies are going to look for a lot more real-time data. They're going to look for new data sources. They're going to look for new ways of understanding their customers because those customers are not necessarily the same customers that they were. And I don't mean different people. I mean, really, they've, they've changed you know, than they were maybe three or four months ago. So I think that there's going to be a real renaissance in the way that we approach being insights-driven and much more of an urgency. You know, it's interesting. We, we were talking about COVID-19 and that crisis, I actually think there are three crises going on at once. And one is COVID-19. Another immediate crisis, especially in the United States, is race and inequity. Mm -hmm. And then even more broadly, but I think on a lot of people's radar right now is climate change. It's almost like you've got to keep all three of these things in your head right now. Different people with with different focuses are, are going to be focusing on different of them. But in fact, we've got you know, an array of crises. And, you know, when I look forward over the next few years, I think there may be massive changes coming. When you look ahead, how do you see data and data analytics impacting business and society too, and and the economy? So a couple of things. I think that the just living through the pandemic and the the exposure to the data and the stats about the pandemic, you know, how many cases are there? How many active cases? How many critical cases? You know, death rates and numbers of ICU beds for millions and all of that kind of data that, you know, people are are hearing about all the time. I think that that's going to 
raise the awareness of the need for data literacy is one, because we've seen so many misinterpretations of the data. We've seen people manipulate data. We've pe seen people try to you know, present data in different ways. So I think that that's, that's one of the changes that we'll see is, the, is really the increased awareness uh, of uh, of the data that's around us, hopefully that awareness will lead us to raise the level of of, of understanding uh, of what data is and how to use it. But I also think that you know, just in terms of these large trends, I think this period has given us pause and allows us to to reflect more on on some of these other crises, as you call them. And, and so I think that we're going to see maybe a catharsis where all of this change comes together. I don't think that we will, I mean, personally, obviously, I don't think that we'll return to quote unquote normal. I think there will be a new normal. You know, where it falls out, I, I don't know. But I don't think that it will, I mean, I, I think that we're we're in for a significant period of change over the next few likely few years you know what forrester we're, we we look at and forecast you know changes in the in the global economy and how that impacts technology and technology spending and our scenarios you know don't bode so well for this year and and some of them extend out even into next year as well so as we're all kind of feeling the effects of 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 this current crisis and and experiencing the ongoing nature of some of these other crises. I, I actually don't live in the U.S., I, although I'll admit that what's happening in the U.S. right now is something that's being observed by the world. And, but, but I, I, so I think that, you know, and, and, and even seeing what's going on in the U.S. allows everybody else to reflect on, you know, similar situations that may, you know, may exist in, in, in their countries as well. But I do think that we're in for an extended period of, of change I don't want to say unrest because I, I, I would like to, to pitch it as a more positive. I see opportunity right. in this right. Right. for everyone. I hope you're right. You know, one, one thing I observe is I think, you know, in parts of the world and, and in parts of society over the past few years, there was kind of a devaluation of facts and knowledge. Do you think that COVID and maybe some of these other things, maybe especially triggered by COVID, do you think that you think that facts, expertise, and knowledge are going to become kind of have a resurgence in the popular mind? I would like to think so, although I'm not a hundred percent optimistic. Uh, I think that there, I think that there are still too many people who are are wary of facts and how they're delivered to them. And I think we need to focus on education. And I think that in many places there, there hasn't been enough focus on uh, an investment in education. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to beat my data literacy drum, but, but I think that a big part of that education is starting with, you know, STEM, math, data, you know, data literacy at, at very early ages and starting very basic one of the things that, you know, we'll, just to go back to our the beginning of the conversation where we talked about me living in Africa, you know, I worked on some literacy programs when I was in Africa. And you, you don't start by handing somebody a book. You actually start by handing them pictures. 
because one of the things that, that you know was recognized in teaching literacy to people who haven't had a lot of uh, exposure to print material is just seeing a picture of a tree. You have to explain that that abstraction represents a tree because actually what we think of as a tree, you know, the pictures that we see in children's books of the kind of, you know, green cloudy thing with a brown stick on the bottom doesn't really look like the actual trees that you see outside. And so I think we need to really start at a basic level. We can't present somebody with facts um, or data or insights and expect them to to accept and understand it. Just like you can't hand somebody a book when, when they, they don't really know the alphabet or they don't understand that, the level of abstraction that's required to start from letters and create words and sentences and tell a whole story in, in written material. And I think that elevating the, the, the value of facts and, and of having a fact-based society is going to require a lot more education and, and back to the basics in terms of data literacy. Well, Jennifer, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it. The Data Cloud World Tour is making 21 stops around the globe so you can learn about the latest innovations at Snowflake's Data Cloud at a venue near you. Join your fellow data leaders at one of our full-day events to network with Snowflake customers and technology partners, attend educational breakout sessions, and learn how to drive more value from your data. Find an event near you at www.snowflake.com data cloud world tour.